Another opportunity you have today is you get to choose how you enter today and the next three weeks. And here's what I mean. You have an opportunity in front of you that you can just attend an event today. You can, you can be a part of this gathering and you attend an event. It lasts roughly about an hour, an hour and 10 minutes. And the event had singing and it had some form of communication happening. And you can walk out and you can go, I gained some stuff. I had a good time. Or you have the opportunity to sit and go, Holy Spirit, what do I need to take from this today? Holy Spirit, what work do you need to do inside of me today? Holy Spirit, what is this for me? You're seeing know something up front. You're not here by chance today. Everything that's happened in your life has led to this moment. Everything that's going on in the background, you, you might think you stepped in, maybe you got tricked into coming. You were going to In-N-Out and this looks nothing like In-N-Out. And we definitely don't have fast service. It's an hour and 10 minutes, you know? But you're not here by chance. And you have an opportunity to step in because I believe God's got something for you today. And I believe that he wants to impact your faith in your walk on a deep level. And this whole idea of, of this, where we're going, we're going to spend three weeks in the life of Joseph. And when I say that, I realize we're close to Christmas. People think Joseph, Mary's husband. Um, we're talking old school Joseph. We're talking nation Joseph. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But as, we, as we're getting together and, and, and thinking this through, um, it reminds me of a moment I had in Dallas. So about a month and a half ago, roughly, I was in Dallas and uh, we were there. And those of you that are, that are familiar, I've got a daughter, Rylan, and her husband, Noah. They live there. And so um, we were heading out for some stuff for the church. We were going out and we're like, hey, we could probably swing a day with you guys too. So we go hang out with them and, and they're newlyweds. They're in their first year of marriage and, and they're doing things that you should do as newlyweds. And this is what they're up to right now. You train up a child in the way they should go and they don't depart from it. She got a bulldog. Couldn't be prouder. So uh, we have a new bulldog in the family. His name is Reginald, um, which welcome to, that gives you a little insight to my son-in-law, Noah, um, but commonly known as Reggie in our family. So this is Reggie. And so my wife went with me and I got to be honest, 90% of the trip was so she could meet Reggie. You know, 10% was the rest of us. Um, and I, I, on that trip, I go, man, I'm in trouble when this is an actual baby because you might just move here. Um, just kidding. So maybe. Uh, so <laughs> Reggie, we're hanging out at their house and all of a sudden Reggie starts to do what puppies do. He's sniffing around the apartment and we're like, oh, he needs to go to the bathroom. And so they, they live several floors up. And, and so I'm like, I got this. I've, I've raised two dogs. I think I can handle this. And so I grab Reggie and we head down and I, I got clear instructions. There's grass. And so I get down there and there's two pieces of grass. And I'm like, well, any grass works, right? So I throw him on the grass. He instantly walks over to the other grass as if to say, you got it wrong. Um, <laughs> but then we get there and he just lays down. And I'm like, bro, come on. Like we're down here for a purpose. And he just lays down in the grass and he's just hanging out there. And so I'm like, okay, if you're just going to hang out, I'm going to wait. And I got on my phone and started texting and I was having this conversation. So I kind of paying attention, kind of not. Anyways, Reggie goes back to the stairs and, and he can't climb up. So I pick him up and we're walking up the stairs and this big dog comes down 
And I wasn't really paying attention. And he starts to like move and get excited and literally almost dropped him. Don't tell my daughter. Um, And I'm like, oh boy, I got to pay more attention. So we get to the hallway and I put Reggie down and he starts walking out ahead of me and he goes around the corner and I'm like, no, I think it's this door. Come on back. And so now I'm standing at the door and I'm texting. He's sitting down looking at me like that. Like, are we going to go in or what? Like, so he's sitting there looking at me. I finished texting. Now go to open the door. And as I open the door, there's, there's kind of like a bookshelf on this side and there's photos and none of those photos are my family. <laughs> he's been looking at me like that. He takes off because he's been waiting for that door to open. To which, as I opened the door, screaming began. And this young lady who was in her 20s jumps up from her, from her dining room table. It's a one-bedroom apartment, so you're seeing the front all the way through, and then there's a bedroom. She jumps up from behind these computer screens. She's screaming. Reggie runs in. She's tiptoeing, screaming. I'm like, it's a puppy. It's not going to eat you, right? Now, I'm standing at the door. Like, when I say screaming, you would think, like, she was being murdered, And I'm like, what do you say in that moment? I'm a pastor. That's not helpful. I'm a dad. That's not helpful. Like literally, all of a sudden, everything is stripped away from me. Like everything that's familiar is gone, right? There's no roadmap for this. I'm standing there now going, uh, I don't know what to do. I literally, I think those words came out of my mouth. I'm like, I don't know what to do right now. I'm definitely not crossing this line right here into your apartment. But Reggie has now run into the bedroom. She's still screaming. And now I'm like, can I get him? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, he's in the bedroom. You know that, right? I'm going to go into your bed go. I'm like, okay, (laughs) just being clear. Well, Reggie loves to go under my daughter's bed. That's his safe spot. And so on the way in, it's like time slowed down, y'all. I'm like praying like crazy. Please don't let him be under the bed. Please don't let him. And I get there and it's as if Reggie is now looking at the bed going, this ain't my bed. Where are we? He doesn't know what to do. So I walk over, praise the Lord. He did not go into the bed. I walk over, pick him up. And as I'm leaving, I'm like, I'm really sorry. I'm a dad. My daughter's upstairs. I got the wrong apartment. Like I'm trying to say everything I possibly can to make this better. And and I get to the door and the door shuts behind me. And instantly you hear the latch. I'm like, that's, that's fair enough. Y'all, it's one thing when you lose sight and you're uncomfortable and you lose identity and chaos and future. And it's a funny story in somebody else's apartment. It's another thing when that's your life. It's another thing when things went sideways on you and you didn't plan on it. When the marriage you thought would be this and it's turned out not to be that. When the relationship you thought would end or move this way and it hasn't. When those that say they love you took advantage of you. 
and hurt you. When the job that that you've been striving for all of a sudden is taken out from under your feet. When the house that you've worked a long time for, you no longer can afford. Like it's one thing when we're when we're in a situation and, and we can find humor, but often life carries very, very big, heavy things. We want to talk about those for, for today and through the next weeks in the life of Joseph. See, sometimes like this graphic here, we, we want the lines to be like they are on the bottom, where everything we thought just kept connecting just like we thought it would. But what's true of life is that so often the lines look like the middle, where, wait, I never thought this would connect that way, and I never saw that coming. When life just all of a sudden takes a turn. And so today we're kind of wrapping around this phrase, even when blank. And you get to fill in the blank because your story and your journey is unique to you. You may fill in that blank with choices you've made. You may fill that blank in with choices that have been made to you. You may fill that line in with whatever happens to be your reality. But even when blank, and we'll come back to that at the end, because this, what you see here, represents the story of Joseph. And if you, if you have a Bible, we're in Genesis chapter 37. And in Genesis 37, there's a context to it. If you were with us uh, several months ago, we talked about this moving home series that God created. And when God created, he made the, the perfect environment for humans. We talked about the generosity of God. Everything was given by God that humans needed to flourish. This was home. And included inside of that was a choice to love because without choice, it's not love. And so God in this moment hands this to humans. Humans decide to run away. They make the choice opposite to God and begin to run away. And what God starts to do is he comes to those humans and he goes, hey, I'm gonna collect you into a nation. And so he takes a family and as he collects that family, he makes a promise to a man named Abram that that I'm going to bless the entire world through your family. And so he starts to collect them and he goes, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So this is pre-Jesus. Jesus hasn't come yet. This is God collecting this family to be a nation. And Joseph is part of that family. He's a couple of generations removed from Abram. And in verse two, it says this, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So we're kind of giving a little context to who Joseph is. He's 17 years old. He's just a young man. And as a young man, he has this role within the family of coming back to his father and telling his father, hey, here's what the brothers are up to. Here's how it's going with with the business, the family business, so to speak. It's a report that's brought back. And we find later that the dad would actually send him out to go and do this and come back and give a report. The next verse says, now Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. So context, he's a young man, he's 17. He is child number 11 out of 12. And and what's significant to that is normally he would just be way down in the line and paid no attention to in this cultural context. But Joseph had four wives and one of those wives he loved immensely. Her name was Rachel. And he loved Rachel more than the others, but Rachel had never been able to have children until Joseph. 
And so for, for Jacob, there was this love for Rachel that extended to Joseph that didn't extend the same to all the other um, sons. And it's in that context then that we hear that he makes this ornate robe. Now, you may have grown up in the time that this was a coat of many colors. Uh, you might have had, um, you know, the whole imagery in your mind that, hey, he's got this rainbow coat and everywhere he goes, everybody knows that's Joseph and he's loved by his dad. Or if you're in the, the Broadway Technicolor dream coat and that's in your mind, what's fascinating is this word ornate, we don't have a good translation into our language. And so what scripture does do is it wants us to know that there is extreme significance to this ornate robe. Now, best we can tell, what it meant was is that Joseph's robe was a little longer. And Joseph's robe was not only longer in length, but also in sleeve, that this robe had sleeves. Now, what's significant about that is his brothers, it's believed that their robes were cut off at the shoulders and cut off at the knees. Why? Because those robes were designed for working. Joseph's was designed for leading and ruling. So now instantly, just by what these brothers wear, you have this significance given to the 11th child. But because this is the child that, that Jacob loved his mama more, What's actually translating to the brothers is the blessing that should be passed on over here. Hey, wait a minute. Has the blessing been passed to this kid? Because this kid don't deserve it. And so what happens then in the next verse, when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. That, that the reality then is these brothers began to hate this younger sibling. These brothers, when it says hate, this idea of doing him harm, like, like it's just welling up inside of them. Maybe, maybe something that this story captures, we're not going to be able to camp on it today. But if you've got undealt with emotion in your life, you better believe it's not going away. And you got to figure out how do I deal with what's going on internally? How do I deal if, if there's hatred, bitterness? How do I deal with that before it comes out in ways that we don't want it to? And so they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Verse five, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So now this hatred that was there, it's actually growing in nature. Like the story wants us to catch, hey, they didn't just hate him. They couldn't say anything nice about him. And on top of that now, because of his dream, this hatred is growing. Now the dream was, and whether you think it's wise or not, whether you think Joseph should have got a journal and just kept his thoughts to himself for a while, that's... Completely fair, right? But he shares this dream and, there, and the dream goes like this, that, that there were um, sheaves of wheat and Joseph's rose higher than any of the others. And all the other sheaves of wheat around bowed down to Joseph's. And so the translation was, the brothers are like, wait a minute, you think we're gonna bow down to you? Which if you have siblings and you are, I was the youngest brother, that's a good dream. Just saying, right? But what we got to get is in the context of, of what's happening, that the brothers are interpreting through the lens of how they're viewing the world. Wait a minute, you think that's going to happen? And they hated him. The Bible says they hated him all the more. Well, then he has another dream and he shares that. And he shares specifically, hey, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were all bowing down to me, which then his father goes, wait a minute, you think your mom and I are going to bow down to you as well? And the brothers get worked up even more by these dreams. Now, now, before we're too harsh on, on Joseph, the family 
heritage of, this, of, of the, the family we're talking about, Jacob had a dream and God talked to him through that dream. So, so it was common within the family that through a dream, God would actually speak. So in this context, then when Joseph's sharing this, he's actually talking about a God-given dream and the family would have understood that God works in dreams. And, and so as, as they move forward, then the brothers hate him and, and they end up going out and tending to the sheep, doing their job, doing their work. And you get another little picture because what happens is um, Jacob tells Joseph, hey, why don't you go check on your brothers and come back and tell me how they're doing? Those brothers are 90 miles away with the sheep. This is the day when Teslas don't exist, right? He's not jumping in the family Range Rover and making a quick trip to Phoenix and back. He's trekking out there. And so as he treks out, he gets to a place and, and, and runs into a, a man. And the man says, no, they're not here anymore. I think they've, they've moved on. And so in verse 17, it says this, they, they have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. What's significant about Dothan is it literally translates desolate, deserted. Like there's nothing in this space. It's wilderness. It's out there. It's where no one will be around. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, verse 18. But they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. How'd they know he was coming? What's he wearing? Oh, he got that robe on. You know, that robe that you can recognize from far away because it's not like the working robes. They recognized him. He identified by his robe. They see his robe. They see him coming and they have enough time to go, hey, we're going to plot to kill you, which at that point, Reuben, another brother, um, it says, here comes the dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say to the ferocious animal, devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. What's funny with this, before we get to Reuben's piece, what's funny with this is Think about how fragile life was in those days. It's completely believable that a young man going by himself on a 90-mile trek, walking, that an animal could have come and taken him out. That's why you had 12 kids. You're going to lose a couple along the way. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's the reason for it. When people go, why'd you have a big family? Well, we might lose some. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but the reality was the story they're coming up with, it's not real far-fetched. Like, it's not one that you go, man, we've really got to cover this up in a major. Like, it was a common part of the, the culture and stories that it, it was wild. You were in a desolate place. There are ferocious animals. And so they come up to conspire to this when Reuben steps in. He says, when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. Couple of things. They strip him of his robe. <laughs> All right. They strip him of his identity. And in taking his identity, 
Because in those days, the clothes you wore identified you with certain tribes or groupings of people. And in this case, it identified him as the favored one. And they strip him of that. And they throw him physically, violently into a cistern. Now, a cistern in those days, you had two different types. You had ones that were handmade or made man-made, and you would go down beneath the earth into the rock, and you would put limestone on the outside, and you would cover it, and it's essentially a well, and you would have a way for it to collect rainwater, and it stored rainwater. But because this is a deserted place, we know that this cistern more than likely was just the ground was going along, and then there's an opening in rock, and that rock was like a well inside, but all sides of it would have been rock and the ground would have just kept going. It was essentially a hole in the ground. And it says that they violently threw, or they threw him, which if you're gonna throw somebody, then there's a fall that's intended and there's harm that's intended. So now for Joseph, he's now down in this cistern. And one of the fascinating things with the way it's worded As it talks about the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. Think about a cistern for a second. A cistern was designed to capture rainwater. Water equals life. This was supposed to be a place of life that for Joseph, the Bible's very clear. One, he didn't drown because there's no water in it. Two, there was no water in it, hence there's no life in it. A place that should have been life is actually death. And now Joseph is at the bottom. And Joseph is staring at rock walls. Why is that significant? Joseph lost sight in this moment. All he can see is just what's in front of him. Joseph in this moment went from somebody who had control, that he was navigating his journey. He's going to go find them and bring back a report. And he's on mission And in a moment, control was stripped from him and he's now sitting in a spot where he has zero control over what happens next. The outcome. He has no control over the outcome. This isn't isn't a moment that he gets to choose, oh, I could just climb out of here and go back to my dad. He's now stuck and somebody else is determining his outcome. His comfort, every, his, his jacket's gone, his robe's gone, his robe that represented not only comfort in physical wear, but comfort in identity. His comfort, his identity, and his future, those dreams, they're all stripped away in a moment when somebody else did something to him that he did not deserve. And he's now sitting at the bottom of a well, a cistern, a pit. I wonder how many times in our life we feel like we're sitting at the bottom of a cistern where I had sight of something and that sight's been taken. Where I had, I, <laughs> we think we have control. I thought I had control of something and somebody else or some situation or something out of my control took control of my life. I wonder how many times that we think, man, this is going to be the outcome only to discover the outcome I thought it was going to be isn't the outcome that it is. And now I'm stuck in this place where I don't know what to do. I've lost it all. This moment when I had this identity, I was this person, I built this whole life and and I was identified and it was gone in a moment. And now I'm sitting in the bottom of the cistern where I thought I had a future and this is what my future was and this is what I was going to do. And in a moment, everything changed and shifted. It went sideways on me. 
Like, I wonder how well we can actually, the, the, the human element of Joseph sitting in the bottom of his cistern, we can go, man, I can actually relate to this because this is my life at different times. Some of you may be going, this is my life today. And here's the danger. What we tend to do when we are in the bottom of the cistern is we make my experience what I project onto who God is. So for example, Joseph loses sight. It would be easy for Joseph to go, God, you've lost sight of me. It would be easy to go, hey, I've lost control. So God, you must be out of control because God, I don't see you showing up right now. I don't see you doing the things that I think you should do. And so God, have you lost control? Are you still? And we begin to question based on my experience, I begin to question the very person and nature of God. That, that when I can't see how this plays out, when I'm unsure of the outcome, I begin to go, God, do you have the outcome? Or, or maybe it's this identity piece, right? That we know we stand in here and we go, yes, I'm a child of God. I'm saved by God. It's by grace. And then something happens and I'm like, oh God, do you really, am I really saved by grace? Did you change the rules? Because I don't feel you right now. And all of a sudden, this experience of the cistern gets projected onto the person of God. We cannot shape God by our experiences. God has to be shaped by who he says he is and what his character is. And the minute we begin to shape God by our experience, we begin to lose who God actually is. But sometimes we're in, we're in the cistern. Verse 25 begins like this. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan. These traders roll up. How cruel, by the way. One is starving in a pit and the others are feasting essentially on their peanut butter and jelly that they brought from home. And as they're sitting, eating around the fire, they notice this caravan of traders come rolling up. And after a few interactions, the brothers go, hey, let's not kill him. Let's not get that blood on our hands. By the way, hatred is always about you, just so we're clear. But let's not kill him. In fact, let's sell him. And we'll sell him just for the average. We're not going to ask a lot for this kid. We just want to get rid of him. So they get 20 shekels. And now what was free and ended up in a pit now becomes a life of slavery. And these, these traders are moving towards Egypt. And it says in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So now he's gone from in the pit to one group of people. And now that group of people go, we can make more money on this kid. Let's sell him to the Egyptians. And so now he's sold to Potiphar. You, you realize what happens when you're a slave, right? You don't choose when you wake up. You don't choose what you eat that day. You don't choose when you go to work. You don't choose when you rest. You don't choose when you go to the bathroom. You don't choose how much output you're going to have in your day. You don't choose when you go to sleep. Your entire life as a slave is determined. Joseph has gone from free to now this slave that has no choices and is at the mercy of someone else to tell them what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And it's in that context that in chapter 39, verse six, so Potiphar, who he was sold to, left everything he had in Joseph's care. 
With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Why is that stunning? Why is that matter? We don't know how long it took for this to be true. We think roughly about five years. But at some point, Joseph didn't allow his bitterness to get the best of him. He became better. You realize there's a really fine line between bitter and better. He determined that to be better, he would do what's in front of him to do. And so the part of the story we skipped prior to this verse is that Joseph did the most menial task in front of him as a slave. And as he stepped out and did that task to be better, not bitter, what happened is God began to bless it. And God began to walk with him. And the favor of God was on him. So much so that somebody who did not know God, Potiphar, looks at him and goes, man, everything Joe touches turns out all right. I'm going to give him a little more responsibility, a little more responsibility, a little more. And it's not long before everything down to, okay, I just want to choose what I'm going to eat, but you can do everything else. Joseph has control over all of that. Why? Because he did what was in front of him to do. Now Joseph, the end of that verse, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Y'all, there's not many times in scripture that it talks about the physical appearance of a person. What this wants you to know is Joseph was jacked. The, boy, the boy's got abs, okay? He's a good looking dude. Why is that important? Because in verse seven, after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing? How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Y'all, this is amazing. You know why? Joseph doesn't have the whole book. In fact, you know those 10 commandments? They haven't been written yet. Joseph doesn't even have the law. Joseph has a couple of stories from his ancestors and he has a couple of moments of his interactions through dreams. And what he gets in this moment is he goes, no, how could I do such a thing against God? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that he would revere God. Think about it for a second. He's human, we're human. Has God showed up in any which way over the last five years? No. In Joseph's opinion, I've been mistreated. I've got every excuse under the sun why I should be bitter, every excuse why I should be blaming God, which then gives me every excuse to step out and do what I want to do and not follow God. He's got every right to go, you know what? I deserve a little me time. Yes, I do think, Mrs. Potiphar, I'll come see you. He has every reason not to do what he's doing by following God. And yet he doesn't take the excuse. He's found faithful. To stay faithful, you got to be faithful. To stay faithful, I must be 
faithful. Y'all, if you're gonna stand in the midst of what life throws at you and you're gonna maintain any form of faith and trust in God, then whatever comes your way to be faithful, I have to be faithful. I gotta be full of faith in who God is. I gotta be full of faith that who God says he is in spite of what I experience is true because he said it. And to be faithful requires that I hold with everything I've got that God is who he says. There's a, there's a moment in Jesus's life, he's in a boat with his boys and the disciples and they're out in the water. And, and in that moment, a storm comes up. He's, Jesus is sleeping and the boys begin to panic and they're screaming and, and they're like, we're gonna drown. And Jesus gets up, but before he calms the storm, guess what he says? Oh, you of little faith. Because to be faithful requires that I'm faithful. The story carries on. I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. You can either read it yourself or we'll get it next week. But at the end of Joseph's life, he's reflecting. And he's talking to those around him. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Okay, hang on, hang on. You, you fill in the blank on the you. You fill in the blank on whether it's circumstances, people, whatever. You intended it and and it, There's another translation that says for evil, to do harm, the opposite of what God would want. But God intended it for good. Romans 8, 28 is a promise to those that love him. To those that love him, he is working all things together for good. That's a promise. You can can take that to the bank. That God, I may not see it because I lost sight. I may not be in control. I may not know the outcome, but God, you are working this for my good. In spite of what I see, feel, in spite of everything in front of me. You realize in this, if you go back to just this part of Joseph's story and we go back and go, hey, if he hadn't been born of Rachel, he wouldn't have been loved by his father. If he hadn't been loved by his father, his father would never have given him the robe. If he hadn't got the robe, the brothers wouldn't have hated him the way he did. If God hadn't given him dreams, then the dreams wouldn't have inspired more hate from his brothers. If the brothers hadn't gone out into the deserted place, he would never have been in the deserted place. Had he not gone to the deserted place wearing his robe that his father gave him, if all that hadn't happened, now he gets there, now he wouldn't end up in a pit. You realize all of this can go if it hadn't happened, if it hadn't happened, if it hadn't happened, and yet Joseph's interpretation is, but you don't understand it was for good. Oh, it may not be my good, but it's for his good. It's for his glory. It's for his fame. It's for his name. Oh, I may not understand because I can't see. All I can see is cistern walls today. But he sees, and he's in control. And he knows the outcome. You got your even when blank? Remember we started with that? Even when I might be standing in someone else's apartment. (laughs) I'll ask God someday, how'd that work? What's that for? (laughs) Teacher to lock her door. There you go. (laughs) 
I had somebody tell me that last night. I'm going to lock my door. Okay, <laughs> thanks. Somebody else said, I didn't know we had a pastor who was a creeper. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's encouraging. Somebody else came up and said, well, at least she wasn't caring. You'd be dead. It was Texas. I'm like, true story. You got your even when blank? Even when the marriage didn't turn out how you thought. Even when you're hurt to your core. Even when you're struggling because that news you got from the doctor isn't what you wanted. Even when the loss of a loved one that you can't explain because they were gone too early. Even when the people that said they would protect you turned out to be the ones doing you harm. Even when the job that you worked so hard for all of a sudden liquidated in front of your eyes. Even when you were mistreated and, and called unfair unfairly to the carpet, even when you were taken advantage of, even when you couldn't control your addiction, even when fill in the blank. We sing a song here often. Um, it's called Waymaker. And if I got my terminology right, I keep meaning to ask in between services and never ask. So if I got my terminology right, there's a bridge. And in the bridge, it says this, even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. Even when I can't explain because I have lost sight and all I can see is a cistern wall, you're working. Even when I can't control the outcome, you're working. Even when I don't know the future, you're working. Even when I don't know my identity today because it's been stripped away by all the hurt and all the unfairness and all the people taking advantage, you're working. And I'm going to stand full of faith on him and not what's in front of me in my experience. And so we're going to close a little different today because normally I pray over you. But the prayer today is going to be a song that we sing together because we're going to sing these words over one another that even when I can't see it, you're working. And even when I can't feel it, it's our prayer today. You're working. Why? Because you never stop. You never stop working. You're always working good. How do we know that? Romans 8, 28. You're always working all things together for good. And I'm going to be full of faith today. So would you stand? We're going to worship together.